Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my host is Dr. Valentina Kovaci. Valentina is a lecturer of, uh, at the University of Bucharest, and uh, she works on uh, Roman Catholic theology, or that's the department she's working in, but she focuses very much on medieval Jerusalem. And we're going to see today, first of all, what is medieval Jerusalem, which is a very large term. And we're going to talk about uh, communities, particularly the Latin and the Greeks in the Holy City, as well as Western pilgrims traveling in the very early period, particularly during Mamluks, uh, the Mamluks era. But first of all, Valentina, welcome. Uh, thank you for the invite. It's such a joy to be on uh, Jerusalem Unplugged, which I listen to weekly. So I'm, I'm very happy to, to be here and to speak about uh, medieval Jerusalem and not only. Thank you. So the first question is, what is your Jerusalem? What is your connection with the city? How, from Romania, you start working on Jerusalem? Yeah. So I came to Jerusalem, first of all, through academia, uh, because I did my PhD at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And I was part of a larger project dedicated to the Franciscan presence in Jerusalem in medieval times. And uh, I, my part of the project uh, dealt with the rituals of the Franciscans in Jerusalem. And through this, starting to uh, study the, the, their ceremonies, etc., I got very much into liturgy and particularly into liturgical encounters between the Latin church and the Greek Orthodox church. Um, so I, my, my connection to Jerusalem is first of all academic, but then during my PhD, I actually uh, got to live for a while in Jerusalem uh, to do some field work to, to actually witness this liturgy at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and not exclusively. 
So I my my path went from manuscript to to practice to see what what was still going on uh, more than one thousand years <laughs> after the period I started to to study the liturgies of of Jerusalem. So, but then yeah, I also I would say that I also have a personal connection now uh, uh, with Jerusalem thanks to my uh, stays in the city. You work on uh, medieval Jerusalem, so as I said, probably this is the first question, because I'm curious to understand what does it mean medieval Jerusalem, given that medieval, uh, according to you know, historiography in general, it covers from essentially the collapse of the Roman Empire to the Renaissance, which is nearly a millennium. So when we talk about medieval Jerusalem, what does that mean? What, what kind of period we're looking at? Um, for Jerusalem, I would go for a slightly different periodization, not necessarily from the fall of the uh, Roman Empire in the West, because, of course, Jerusalem is in the Eastern Mediterranean and it was part of the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, so I would place the beginning of, of course, which is an arbitrary chronology anyhow, but I would place the beginning of the medieval period in Jerusalem when the ties, the political ties with Byzantium were cut, which happened in 638, when the city of Jerusalem was uh, surrounded by the Patriarch Sophronius of the Melkite Church, of the Greek Orthodox Church, to the conquering, uh, conquering Muslim armies of uh, Omar, of the of Caliph uh, Omar. Uh, so I, that that's where I was placed. I would place the the beginning of the Middle Ages in Jerusalem, and I think you can uh, uh, place the, the 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 end of the Middle Ages in Jerusalem in 1517 when two events happen. First of all, uh, the Ottomans conquer Palestine and they take over Jerusalem, and also this uh, coincides with the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in Europe which very much changes the dynamic of pilgrimage, at least when it comes to Western pilgrimage and to the numbers of Western pilgrims coming to, to Jerusalem. So in 1517, uh, definitely a new period starts uh, in Jerusalem. So I would say that that can be the, seen as, as the end of the Middle Ages. It's very interesting. And also it shows that the term medieval is very... Uh, artificial, and we just use it depending on the context. It's convenient, but uh, uh, again, the Middle Ages for uh, Europeans is not the Middle Ages for the Islamic civilization, as they were just emerging uh, and, in fact, conquering uh, most, most of the known world at that time. I'm curious about something, though. Again, keeping it general, but can you give us a sense of uh, who were the people of Jerusalem in this kind of long period of time? Obviously, we understand that uh, uh, the, the city changed ends several times with different rulers. But if you can give us a sense of how the, the city was transformed also in terms of uh, its urban structure throughout this period of time. Yes. Uh, ethnically, I think they are the, the Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are quite difficult to distinguish, at least for the early periods. But as always, you can uh, distinguish them by religion. So uh, at the moment of the conquest uh, of Jerusalem by the Muslim armies, of, co of course, the, uh, po the population of Jerusalem was made up of Christian, of Oriental Christians, of Melkites. Uh, 
mainly because Jerusalem is one of those cities that uh, keep their allegiance with Byzantium and they uh, are one of the only Chalcedonian churches uh, in the area. Uh, but apart from Melkite uh, Christians, there were uh, Syria Christians and uh, so, um, Christians belonging to the so-called uh, Nestorian church, etc. So all, all sorts of uh, um, Christians um, pertaining to various uh, Oriental denominations. Uh, this started to change gradually after the conquest, the Muslim conquest of Jerusalem, but it was not a, a sudden or a dramatic change. This, the, this was a gradual process for the Muslim uh, uh, population to, to settle and to become uh, a majority in the city of Jerusalem. But throughout the medieval uh, period, there was a constant uh, Christian presence in, in the city. Of course, boosted up during the period of the Crusades uh, with um, uh, significant Latin presence, which was lacking before, because before the Crusades, the Latins were present only in the form of pilgrims coming from, from the West and a few monks scattered uh, on the Mount of Olives. So basically, that was the that, that was the Latin presence before the before the Crusades, uh, and also the Crusades welcomed uh, Christians in into the city of Jerusalem. So that their reign actually boosted the the presence of the Christian population. Uh, this was to a certain degree overthrown by the reconquest of Jerusalem by the, by Saladin in 1187. Uh, but still, although the, the, the city became uh, majority Muslim again, uh, there was a, a significant Christian pr uh, presence throughout this period. Uh, not so much a Jewish uh, presence, uh, the presence of, of, Jewish, of the Jewish population is uh, hinted at, but not in great numbers. Definitely uh, a smaller presence than the Christian and the Muslim one. After this overview, I really want to go back to your original work about the Franciscan presence in the Holy Land. I mean, nowadays, obviously, visitors can go and visit the, uh, the custody of the Holy Land, which essentially means, you know, the, uh, the, the Franciscans took the title of the custodians, the protector of the holy places. This goes back to the time of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, and I was wondering if you can give us a sense of the relationship between the Franciscans, starting from St. Francis himself, and Jerusalem. Yes. Uh, very early on in the history of the Franciscan order, uh, St. Francis uh, settled as a, as a point of Franciscan spirituality, uh, their uh, role in missionary work, particularly among the Muslims. Uh, so very early on, he uh, sent brothers to, to the East and this uh, uh, province of, of the Holy Land was established early on in the history of the Franciscan order. However, this, uh, the, the Custodia Teresante, the custody of the Holy Land as we know it today, uh, dates from the first half of the 14th century, uh, when the right of the presence was bought for, uh, for the uh, brothers by the king and queen of Naples. So they came back as the exclusive representatives of the Roman church in Jerusalem after the Latin clergy were thrown out by Saladin in 1187. So between 1187 and 1333, we have this hiatus of, of Latin presence. 
the Latin priests were allowed only or sporadically to celebrate in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And this also uh, restricted the presence of uh, Latin pilgrims coming to Jerusalem. But with 1333, when the right of a presence is bought from the Mameluk Sultan by the King and Queen of Naples, we have uh, approximately 20 Franciscan brothers settled in Jerusalem. Uh, and they start to organize the Western pilgrimage and to celebrate the Latin mass service daily at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And they lasted uh, in, they last in Jerusalem ever since. So this is indeed a very long, uh, uh, you know, history of between Jerusalem and at large the Holy Land and the Franciscans, um, which obviously is not going to change anytime soon, given that this is like one of the most solid institutions in the city. I was wondering, I mean, given the fact that the Franciscans have been in the city for such a long time, what do you see in terms of like their contribution to the, uh, to the seat itself? I'll tell you my perception. I, I, I've been working with the Franciscans and I've been obviously visiting Franciscan places. And I, at times I had the perception that there's a disconnect. There is the Franciscans and there is the city. But then also you can see that there are Franciscans who are actually part of the seat itself. And, so there is kind of like some sort of a paradox, like they are in the city, but they're not part of a city, but this may be only superficial. So I was wondering about your, the fact that you've been working for, on the Franciscan for such a long time and that you covered a long period of time, how do you see them as part of a city? Yes, I actually have the contrary impression because I, I see how they change the, uh, uh, the topography in Jerusalem, at least the sacred topography of Jerusalem, because we all know of this uh, uh, Via Crucis street in, in Jerusalem, and that's pretty much a Franciscan creation because it was born out of a Franciscan devotion of the ritual memorialization of the last part of Christ, from Pilate's place to the, uh, to the Calvary. And sometimes in the 14th century, they started to, to uh, walk this ritual route through Jerusalem, through Mamluk Jerusalem, which was of course going against the rules to have this sort of uh, procession with pilgrims. Uh, but they still started to uh, uh, memorialize various points in the Passion of Christ and place it on, an, on the map, place it in, at certain points on this uh, path of the, of, of the Via Crucis. So this is how this uh, street actually uh, was born in Jerusalem and how this ritual that we can actually uh, see, see today still uh, emerged. So this is at least one instance when their, when their presence marked uh, uh, forever the topography of uh, Jerusalem. Um, also, if we come uh, towards uh, recent history, uh, they uh, opened recently a museum. So that's, as far as I know, is not a particular museum anymore. And uh, which is remarkable because if we look at other Christian denominations, they, they keep their museums closed, closed most of the time. So the Franciscans are putting uh, their collections out there and actually inviting people to see uh, uh, their history in Jerusalem and their objects. 
And also, they, I know that nowadays they work a lot with the uh, Christian community in Jerusalem. And they, they support all sorts of projects, like schools. And uh, I know that they are buying or restoring houses for Christians in Jerusalem, at least for, I, I imagine, only for Latin Christians, but I, I might be wrong on this. So, yeah, I think they are, they are pretty involved in the city. And also they are uh, appropriating and they appropriated the, the city through their rituals all the time because of course, whoever spent any amount of time in Jerusalem has to bump into a Franciscan led uh, procession uh, in the, in the uh, old city. So I think this was the manner from the very beginning of their presence, even, actually, uh, even under the Mameluk rule and later on under the Ottoman rule to appropriate the landscape of the city. Because if you walk it ritually, this is, it, uh, this is a, a manner of claiming it for, for your brand of Christianity. That's fascinating. And I must ask, given the Franciscans uh, essentially invented uh, well, probably St. Francis himself invented uh, the idea of a nativity, uh, which in Italian we call presepio, so the representation of the birth of Jesus. But as you mentioned, also the Franciscans uh, created this idea of uh, locating the Via Crucis, so the, the path that Jesus walked in his final day. And because you work on, on liturgy, I was wondering how did that come about and what is the Via Crucis really about? Is that a real historical representation or which sometimes people think it is, or is even from the beginning was like just a spiritual sort of a path for people visiting Jerusalem? Uh, it was both uh, because it developed as a spiritual exercise uh, in Western Europe and because the Franciscans uh, had this propensity towards um, meditation on the passion of Christ, which is a, a, a general change and a significant change in Western spirituality uh, on the whole in the 14th century, thanks to the, to the Franciscan order, thanks to, the, to their specific brand of uh, spirituality. This sort of exercise was somehow placed uh, in the real topography of Jerusalem uh, by them. Uh, but this sort of exercise of uh, uh, memorial of uh, remembering uh, ritually the passion of Christ already uh, existed in, in the West. Uh, and there are uh, a couple of people working on this, like Catherine Rudy from uh, St. Andrews. Uh, but what the Franciscans did, of course, they place it in the real uh, topography uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, they uh, uh, didn't, uh, they, they stopped the, the, the spiritual part, the, the spiritual remembering. Because, for instance, Franciscans who uh, went to Jerusalem, they uh, did the Jerusalem pilgrimage, when returning back to Western Europe, they started to recreate Jerusalem in Italy or in the Low Countries, etc. And they wrote uh, special guidebook, guidebooks for the virtual pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem. So uh, this is not really a liturgical activity because it's supposed to, to take you throughout uh, the city without uh, the celebration of the Mass. 
but it's sort of uh, yeah extra liturgical uh, ritual of commemoralization and uh, reliving the the passion of Christ, which was very much in the Franciscan uh, spirituality of of the time. And I'm curious about an article that you wrote uh, appropriating the holy the holy. Franciscan processions in Jerusalem in the 14th, 15th century. I must admit that I didn't know much about it. So I was wondering, what was the purpose of these processions and how did this procession work? Yes. So that's, uh, in, in that particular article, I, I speak about uh, two aspects. First of all, how they managed to still process throughout Jerusalem uh, at the time of the Mamluk rule in Jerusalem, which of course was... Uh, a Muslim rule, and they had to, there were, which came with certain restrictions. First of all, you can't display your Christian rituals in a, in a Muslim city, but uh, a close reading of the sources actually uh, points out that uh, they still did it, uh, particularly on the outskirts of Jerusalem. For instance, they would keep this uh, Palm Sunday procession from Bethany up to the Golden Gate, uh, of course, the Golden Gate was uh, walled up by Saladin, so they couldn't enter uh, the city in, uh, in procession. But they will still have this adjusted uh, Palm Sunday uh, procession. Uh, they will also process, uh, process on Mount Zion between the, the churches on, or that were restored by Franciscans on, on Mount Zion. Um, so there was still uh, definitely a processional activity in in uh, in this Muslim city, processions that, of course, they were not supposed to uh, perform at all, but they, they still did. And uh, the other point that I, I I talked about in this article refers to uh, the the Latin appropriation of the space of the Holy Sepulchre. Because the Franciscans instituted something which is called still today the Processio Quotidiana, the daily procession, which nowadays is at four o'clock every day of the week. And that goes uh, back to the 14th century. So they, pro they are processing throughout the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, stopping at the chapels belonging to other denominations, belonging to the Greeks, belonging to the Armenians. And that's part of their mission at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or their service at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So that, that's, that's a way of uh, imposing and displaying their brand of Christianity in the eyes of the other Christians uh, present at this, the most important church in uh, Christianity. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You actually anticipated my question because I, I remember I attended and I actually worked with the Franciscans uh, a number of his uh, processions, which are literally within the church itself. And it was fascinating. And I also, I remember feeling the tension uh, which I think is part of, a, of, in a sense, of a spectacle to, uh, between the various denominations, whether the Greek Orthodox or the, uh, um, the Copts and so forth. Even though I feel like, obviously, today there's like a lot more respect and uh, mutual cooperation than it was in the past. But still, I think there is a sense of ownership w- within the church. And I think that's, that's an important aspect of, uh, of the Holy Sepulchre, indeed. Now, you, you mentioned that obviously these processions started during the Mamluk period. And as you mentioned, obviously the Mamluk is an Islamic uh, ruler, um, which obviously dominated not just, just Jerusalem, but uh, you know, a larger region. Um, I was wondering, since you wrote about Western pilgrims uh, visiting Jerusalem in that particular period of time, who were these pilgrims? And uh, if you have any chance to tell us perhaps stories about these people and how were they from, how they traveled, and what was the purpose? Did they go back or they wanted to just stay in Jerusalem, maybe dying in Jerusalem? Yes. Actually, this was a very fine-tuned affair during the Mamluk times, uh, the Western pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and it was coordinated by the Franciscans uh, and by the Franciscan houses in, in Western Europe, particularly in Italy, because the... Um, Pilgrimage ships would leave from Genoa and Venice, but most of them from Venice twice a year. And uh, all these pilgrims were organized on uh, what the sources call naciones, nations. Uh, so people from Germany and the Low Countries will come under the, the, the name of the German nation, and the Italians will come as the Italian nation. Uh, and probably the Hungarians will also join the, the German nation. So they were organized on these nations. Uh, they will travel in the, in the same ship. But while, uh, once they landed, in, uh, they, they arrived in, uh, in Jaffa, uh, they will be assigned an interpreter for their own uh, language. Because, of course, all the rituals would be in Latin and all the sermons would be preached in Latin to them. 
But if they had uh, assigned an interpreter of their own language, which would, uh, would usually be a Franciscan from that particular nation, so German Franciscan for the German-speaking nation and Italian Franciscan for the Italians, and someone who, a Franciscan who spoke some sort of version of French for the French nation, uh, so they will they will take care of them and translate uh, particularly the sermons for for them because the the ritual would usually not be translated because the ritual was in Latin in Western Europe anyway. Um, and in Jerusalem they will be assigned to uh, pilgrim hostels, one of them or one of them on uh, Mount Zion. Uh, and they will be divided women and men. Most of the pilgrims were actually men. Uh, apart from the usual pilgrims that we would expect, the monks and nuns, etc., there were um, many members of the nobility making the Jerusalem pilgrimage because they could afford it, uh, because it was quite costly. Monks would also uh, sometimes travel at someone else's expense. Uh, a noble or someone would pay for, for their pilgrimage, for, for their uh, passing of the sea. Um, so and they would they would be taken together all these nations of pilgrims and their interpreters around the holy sites in Jerusalem and the Holy Land at large. Uh, many of them would actually make the the trip to the to Saint Catherine's in the Sinai, so quite far off uh, from Jerusalem, or to the Dead Sea or to the sites in uh, in Galilee. It depended on the context, on how well the Mamluks actually controlled their territory, because there, uh, in the pilgrimage accounts, we hear a lot about uh, uh, bandits that they would uh, they would rob the pilgrims, etc., etc., and of course they would be assigned, they would pay, uh, and be assigned some sort of uh, bodyguards and interpreter of uh, Arabic. Um, so the, they they were called the uh, Turkomans. So they, they had this, this protection, but sometimes the, the Mamluk authorities, they uh, didn't control the, their territories uh, so well. So in order to avoid these incidents, particularly if, if there was a, a war going on, they would avoid going to, to St. Catherine's in the Sinai and just restrain their, their pilgrimage to Jerusalem and the surrounding uh, areas. I was curious about, uh, you know, these pilgrims obviously they visited. And what do we know about what they brought back to, to Europe? You know, whether it was Italy, Spain, or France, how did they represent Jerusalem? Because what, one of the perception, particularly working on the later period, is that we, in general, we European, have been massively influenced by the travels of these uh, medieval individuals and how they told the story other trip and how they saw Jerusalem and indeed also how they represented the local population, Arabs, Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Uh, so there was a massive trade in, in the Middle Ages as well in pilgrimage tokens. So they would try, pilgrims coming back from Jerusalem would try to bring something of the holiness of the city uh, back to, to their place. Uh, most of them uh, consisted of items that we also, or a lot of people, still bring back today from Jerusalem. Uh, some uh, ground or holy water from Jordan, 
or uh, incense and things like that. So that's, that, this is a very old trade or some small uh, icons or pilgrim, uh, pilgrimage badges, something that would, uh, would remind them of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, there are also the cases when uh, Western pilgrims, pilgrims try to replicate the monuments of Jerusalem. So they would measure, for instance, they, they would take measures of the slab of the holy tomb inside the edicule and recreate it in a church in Western, Western Europe. So they will have so, this sort of cenotaph, uh, a mock holy uh, um, uh, tomb uh, inside the church dedicated to the Holy Sepulchre somewhere in the West. Or they would try to recreate uh, the entire uh, uh, sacred la uh, landscape of uh, Jerusalem, as it happened, for instance, in Italy, in Northern Italy at Varallo, where uh, or where on the Sacro Monte di Varallo you have the the, the, uh, the replica of Jerusalem at large with the Mount of Olives and uh, the sites of the Passion and of course the the uh, replica of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, itself. Um, when it comes to the their impression of the local population, there are quite a few pilgrims that actually uh, did do speak about the, the local population, about the Arabs particularly, uh, because they uh, buy things from them uh, inside the Holy Sepulchre as well. They, they speak of this trade that is going on during the Mass, which is not uh, an unusual sight when it comes to medieval liturgy. So they are they are buying things from them, and they they describe the, the way they dress, and of course there is a lot of uh, a lot of what they are saying is informed by uh, polemics. For instance, why they are wearing uh, beards and why they eat what they eat, and why they their women are veiled, etc., etc. So this is a, this is part of the polemical writing. It doesn't come necessarily from direct knowledge. They are just replicated what they read or, or what they were told about the, the Muslims, for instance, at large. Um, when it comes to local, the local Christians, uh, the, there is a similar situation. They, uh, they are just sort of uh, repeating things from the polemical literature. Um, but also some of the, some of the uh, monks, for instance, or the priests or... Uh, people who are trained in theology and are uh, making the Jerusalem pilgrimage, they are they are better informed and they try to engage with the other uh, denominations on a more profound uh, level and explain why they are doing things they in the way they do. Uh, going back to the theological differences, going back to the uh, era of the councils when there this separation between Chalcedonians and uh, Non-Calcedonian churches was was created, so it depends on on the pilgrim really and on his depth of knowledge. I'm going to use an analogy for which you're probably going to be shouting at me. I don't know if you remember the movie with Orlando Bloom, Kingdom of Heaven, which yeah. was like a very famous movie, obviously full of historical mistakes. But there was one an interesting question at some point when the main character finally gets to Jerusalem and is asking, what is Jerusalem? I mean, he's really trying to figure out why all of these people are fighting and dying for the city. And I was wondering if in your work, you ever found out 
what were the pilgrims really looking for? Why they were putting themselves in danger of dying in this very perilous trip. But nevertheless, they made it there. And then they made the, the trip backwards and they're really trying to rebuild that Jerusalem, like you said, in this uh, place in Northern Italy, in the, the, around Bergamo. But also remember the, this amazing church in Bologna, the seven churches where you have another representation of Jerusalem and many other places. What is that they were looking for? Uh, they were looking for something they were told to look for uh, because most Christians would be uh, familiar with Jerusalem in the shape of the heavenly Jerusalem from the apocalypse. Uh, but when undertaking this, this pilgrimage, they will go to a, some sort of training because on the ship and when the, uh, on the way up to Jerusalem from, from Jaffa, they would be instructed by their guides, by their Franciscan guides, on what the earthly Jerusalem was. But their earthly Jerusalem was not, was not this backwater town in the Mamluk Empire. It was the Jerusalem of the, uh, of the Herodian times or, Jerus or the Jerusalem of, uh, from the life of Jesus. So that's what they, they came to see. And that's what they are talking about. They are not talking about uh, what they are actually seeing, but what, uh, about what they are supposed to see. For instance, when they are approaching Jerusalem and on this uh, mountain uh, before Jerusalem, this uh, so-called Mount of Joy, they stop and they look uh, over Jerusalem for the first time. They are supposed to sing and they are encouraged to sing this hymn, Urs Beata Jerusalem, which of course refers to a psalm of joy, etc., etc. So this is how they, they see Jerusalem not through the dirty little town that it was at the time, <laughs> not as that, but they see it through, through, through biblical eyes, through what they heard of at, at the mass or through what they read in, in the Bible. I guess that didn't change for quite some time because obviously even pilgrims in the late 19th century and early 20th century had the same experience, which brings me to ask you, do you have any sense of what kind of relationship these pilgrims had with local, uh, with the local population, other than obviously the translation and maybe the accommodation? Is there any sense if they relate to each other or they were completely, basically strangers to each other? Uh, if they, the pilgrims were mostly strangers because their interaction with the local population was. Um, intermediated it was not a direct relation so they would they would approach someone local or they would be approached through through the translator or uh, through the through the franciscan guide so there was actually no direct connection because of course the language barrier but also the religion barriers so there were many many barriers to overcome and too little time spent in jerusalem in order for this uh, barriers to be overcome. But for those who, who settled in Jerusalem, and there are uh, a few of them, not, not so many, of course, as in Crusader times, but there are people who settle in Jerusalem either to become themselves Franciscans or to be servants in the pilgrim hostels, in, in the Western pilgrim hostels uh, built, in, for, built in Jerusalem. 
uh, they uh, develop a, a relation with with the with the local population, but that doesn't go uh, beyond the trans uh, beyond the, uh, the transaction transactional nature, beyond buying and selling things and things like that. There is a more profound uh, relate. There are more profound relations developed with the local Christians. Because, as I said, many of these uh, people who are staying for longer uh, in Jerusalem, they are theologians, so they are very much intrigued by whatever these people are, are doing. Maybe some of them actually do speak Greek or uh, Syriac, so they can uh, come to a, a deeper knowledge of, of the rituals uh, about which they are actually totally fascinated and then describe them in detail. And you can actually, coming from, uh, from the perspective of a 21st century liturgist with all the insight of knowledge, you can actually check what they are saying and it's, it's pretty accurate. So they have, uh, uh, they acquire real knowledge in, in Jerusalem about these uh, other uh, Christian denominations. Now, we have not much time left, but I want to ask you something which is the very heart of your work, this uh, question of the liturgy. Now, Liturgy is something very religious that connects with the world of the spirituality. But obviously in Jerusalem, this is very important. And so I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, what's the relationship between the liturgical aspect of religion. So the idea of a praying, uh, clothing, you know, behavior we talked about indeed uh, processions and the seat itself. Are they connected? Uh, is that a way of representing only the spiritual or there's also a material aspect to it? Uh, there is definitely a material aspect in the liturgy of Jerusalem, and that's that's a, a feature that develops from the from the very beginning in, in Christian Jerusalem, because the nature of uh, Jerusalem's liturgy is very peculiar, uh, because uh, very early on in the in the Christian centuries in Jerusalem developed the so-called stational uh, liturgy. Uh, what stational liturgy? It's uh, stational liturgy is uh, structured on procession, on processions that go, that go from one station, from one uh, stopping point to the other, and these stops are associated with uh, with moments from the life of Christ. So, from the already from the fourth century, uh, under the Orthodox uh, Patriarch of Jerusalem, we see this uh, stational uh, liturgy developing in, in Jerusalem. And all the manuscripts attest to its development up to the, to the Muslim uh, conquest. So, of course, if the, uh, if, if the liturgy becomes the affair of the entire city, and it has to become since it takes the liturgy throughout all these stops uh, scattered around Jerusalem, then there is a, a definite uh, connection between the, the urban development of, of Jerusalem and uh, Christian liturgy. Of course, this came to a halt with the Muslim uh, conquest of Jerusalem, uh, because, uh, of course, uh, the Azdimi, as a tolerated population, Christians were not allowed to display the uh, rituals. But as I, at least as I witnessed in, in the research I've done on uh, Western pilgrimage, pilgrimage accounts, there are many, many hints that these things were still uh, going on, but on a reduced uh, scale. We got to know each other through Twitter. 
Yeah. Maybe because you were posting pictures of a fascinating place, which is the Holy Sepulchre, but more importantly, of some of the details, which are these graffiti. Now, anyone visiting the Holy Sepulchre cannot but see these graffiti. And there are different, uh, different you know, graffiti throughout the church. Mostly these are crosses, but you also have uh, names written here and there. So now I'm curious, can you tell us anything about uh, these graffitis? Who made them? Uh, why they were made? Uh, one previous guest mentioned that actually it might have been only very few people, but they you know, produced a large number of the same graffiti. And I was wondering if it may be true or maybe there's something more to it. Yeah, that explanation can apply to the graffiti on the staircase uh, going from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre down to the Chapel of St. Helena. This looks like uh, the professional hand of a mason who was paid to do that for, for pilgrims. Uh, but uh, in the columns on the portal uh, on the, at the entrance of the Holy Sepulchre, you can see uh, the name of individuals written. So that's a, that was a very personal mark. So they really wanted to inscribe their names uh, somewhere uh, um, where it, it could be seen by the other pilgrims, presumably, because only other Westerners could read the Latin uh, script. Uh, and there are also all these uh, coats of arms uh, scattered throughout the, the Holy Sepulchre. So I would say, yeah, that there are many types of, uh, of graffiti. Uh, there are these uh, mass-produced graffiti, probably by a professional mason, but also the personal marks. Uh, incidentally, they were not supposed to sign their name on the walls because there are uh, many, many instructions that were preserved coming from the custos, from the head Franciscan in Jerusalem, uh, in their initial sermon addressed uh, to the pilgrims when, the, when uh, he welcomed them. We know that uh, he instructed them not to sign their name on the walls, but of course they still uh, did it because they spent the night in the church. So during the night they would they would get up to all sorts of things, among which inscribing their names on uh, on the walls. Uh, there there are also some lesser known graffiti, and I'm I'm trying to write an, an article on that, and I will call them the the liturgical graffiti. Um, if you if you go up to the roof or where now you can find the Ethiopian section. Uh, there are still some uh, graffiti looking like consecration crosses. So they are coming from, from the time when the church was, uh, the, the Crusader church was consecrated um, in, in the 12th century. So I'm, I'm particularly interesting, uh, interested in, the, uh, in how this, how the liturgy actually got inscribed on, on the walls. And I can, I can actually uh, trace some of this graffiti around the church. So I'm hoping to, to finish this article soon. And we hope to read it soon because uh, the question of a graffiti is fascinating given the fact that they're there and you know, there, there is sort of, I guess, the, the contemporary trend, which was the same back then, not to leave marks. But then you look at them and you feel like nearly compelled some, somewhere to write down your name if you visit as a pilgrim. And in fact, you find graffitis that have been there for obviously millennia, but also maybe just written a, just a few decades ago. So obviously people still keep leaving their names in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I have one last question. Is there anything that I didn't ask, 
but that you feel we should have talked about? Uh, not really. <laughs> uh, I think we did it justice to, to medieval Jerusalem for the amount of time that we, we had. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased to, to have been able to talk to you about this, this fascinating period of, in the history of the city. This was Valentina Kovaci, lecturer uh, at the University of Bucharest and an expert on medieval Jerusalem, but more importantly, about the liturgy uh, that was basically used in the, in the Catholic Church, in the Holy Sepulchre, in other holy places around Jerusalem and Palestine. Valentina, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. 